Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, This is a two-parter. We're taking a look at religious freedom. Part one is going to provide some background, and part two, we're going to take a look at Supreme Court cases. So sit back, relax, enjoy part one. Part two will be coming out next week. Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, boys and girls, welcome back to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. Uh, We got a good one for you today. Matter of fact, it's going to take a little bit of time, so we're going to cut out the pre-beer talk and jump right into this cake mess that we've created for ourselves. This could actually be a two-parter, Jeff. I don't know. This is going to be a long one. Yeah, I think it it probably will be two parts. Uh, It's a subject that keeps coming up. And just because we're not talking about beer doesn't mean you can't be drinking it. Because we are. Yes. There it is. Tapping off the table. So this is, we're going we're gonna to pin this on two ends. We're going to pin it on one end, a gay cake case. That's what I'm calling the Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited versus a Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Uh, the Supreme Court case is just decided. And then we're going to take it in a way back machine, and we're going to go back to the, the Enlightenment and the First Great Awakening. But first... Let's touch base on the Supreme Court case and what that detailed. Um, Basically, in Colorado, there was a baker um, who was – a gay couple came in and wanted this baker to make a cake for their wedding. Um, He said, I'm sorry. You guys are homosexual. Uh, I don't want to make a personalized cake for you. You can buy anything in the the shop you want, anything that's pre-made. But I put a lot of time and energy into this, and this is sort of my speech – and I don't want that at your wedding. And um, and, and let's be clear, uh, the, they didn't ask the baker to, uh, you know, make a cake in the shape of a penis or anything. It wasn't, uh, you know, uh, something obscene that they wanted. It was just the fact that it was to they, they were going to let him do it, right? Let right. him come up with the idea. And he didn't he didn't want to do that. No, he didn't want to do that. I felt that that was again he wasn't and he wasn't denying them service. He wasn't saying you can't be in here, you can't have anything, you can buy anything in the shop. I just don't want to personally make – he considered it's a work of art. I'm an artist. I make these cakes. I've been doing it for 30 years. Uh, so this winds its way through uh, the courts and eventually makes its way to the Supreme Court. Um, and he wins. But it's a very, very narrow decision uh, that I don't think was explained very well on television Basically, what the court case said was that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission that heard this complaint showed animus against religion. That is against um, the I'm trying Philip Jack Phillips is the person's name, man's name. Showed animus against Jack Phillips and his religion, and therefore he was not treated fairly uh, at the state level. Uh, the court left alone really all the big topics. Can you deny service to gay people? not decided. Can he not make a cake for gay people because that's a freedom of his religion? Not decided. Um, basically, he wins because the Colorado Civil Rights Commission did not treat him fairly. Um, it's still, again, it still leaves open all these questions. Uh, it seems like a really nitpicky thing, but 
what one person sees as nitpicky, another person sees as very consequential. And for Jack Phillips, this was his life. He has over uh, three decades, I think it was, making cakes. And these are important to him. And his religion is also important to him. And to understand how this all meshes together, how religion, politics, and the U.S. culture all come together in sort of this baking pot, if you will. Ha, 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 ha. Look, I made a cake joke. Okay, yeah, we want to do that. Um, and wait, wait, you didn't acknowledge a cake joke at all. Yeah, I, I was trying to just get beyond the cake joke. <laughs> okay, let, <laughs> let's take ourselves back, Jeff, to the Great Awakening and the Enlightenment. Actually, the Enlightenment is first, uh, and then we have the Great Awakening right on the heels of that. Right, and you know the the baker in in Colorado is uh, basically citing his right to exercise freely his religion, which is granted in the Constitution. Uh, it also says in the Constitution that we can have no national uh, religion. The way they put it is we can't have an established uh, – Congress can make no law with regard to establishing a religion. So where do these ideas come from? Because obviously these things are still uh, in controversy. It's very important to know the background. Um, the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution were produced during something called the European Enlightenment. Now, it's also called the Age of Reason. Uh, it superseded the Age of Faith. In the Age of Reason, uh, there were certain ideals uh, that uh, European philosophers were writing about and that influenced our founders. And those ideals were liberty, uh, progress, constitutional government. Religious tolerance, which leads to the separation of church and state. And the scientific method comes to be seen as the most powerful and useful way of understanding the world. And this is the age that gives birth to our two founding documents. And so it's very important to know about those ages. Now, the religious tolerance that European philosophers were calling for uh, had its roots in uh, the terrible uh, religious wars that were started in the earlier age of the Reformation. You know, in 1517, Martin, Martin Luther protested the Roman Catholic Church uh, by writing his 95 Theses. And uh, so he protested. He was a Protestant. Uh, he challenged Catholic dogma by insisting the highest authority for Christians was the Bible, not the church. Uh, Christians who read the Bible created a priesthood of believers and no longer really needed to rely on Catholic priests to tell them the meaning of their religion. And this caused a horrible split uh, in, in uh, Christianity, which had been the dominant religion in Europe, and religious wars resulted terrible religious wars. There was the Thirty Years' War, uh, which was started when a new Holy Roman Emperor uh, tried to reimpose Roman Catholicism on his subjects, and mainly in what is now Germany. This resulted in eight million fatalities, uh, witch burnings, uh, uh, just awful. There were, there were the French Wars of religion between the uh, Roman Catholic uh, king, uh, queen and uh, Protestant Huguenots, and that resulted in two to four million deaths. So the philosophers and uh, educated people in Europe looked at this and go, my God, what, what, what we can do, we cannot have just these wars and, and, 
And there were terrible, like I said, terrible uh, yeah, witch burnings. I, I think in war the, that's rooted in religion is different. I think war that's rooted in a political ideology because you can't compromise your religion, right? right, right. And if you believe God's on your side then you believe you're going to be victorious no matter what. Then even if you die in combat, you're going to be rewarded later on. You'll be a martyr for your cause. Right. So these religious wars not only were bad because war is bad, but the root of them makes them even worse because it you cannot capitulate. Because if you do, then somehow you're saying your God is not as strong as the other God. Your, your religion isn't as strong. So there really is a motivation to fight till 7, 8 million, 2 million, 3 million people have perished. Uh, yeah, just just terrible things, and 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 I think the peace of Westphalia ended the uh, Thirty Years' War, and uh, uh, the Treaty of Nantes ended the uh, um, for a time the French Wars of Religion, and basically uh, Protestants were granted a lot of freedom to worship uh, as they pleased, even though Roman Catholicism remained the official religion of the French uh, government. But anyhow. Uh, that that's why there was this revolt among educated people, and and they they were writing people like Voltaire and other people were saying we have to have religious tolerance. You also have the rise of science, which uh, you know uh, up until that time, if you would, in fact, if anybody's visited Europe, if you go to a town of any consequence, uh, you'll see that the center of the old town was if it's a it's a large city, it's a cathedral, uh, old town, it's a church. The center of their lives was religion. Sure, and uh, religion was the highest authority. That well, that was you know it. That was the highest reality. And what you have during uh, well, probably starting in the Renaissance and going through uh, through to the Enlightenment, you have the rise of science. And the greatest scientific figure uh, of the English Enlightenment was Isaac Newton. Everybody knows Isaac Newton because he slept under a tree and the apple fell on his head and it gave him the well. That's the story. And he came up with the laws of gravity. And he had an interesting, uh, he had lots of interesting quotes, but I, I found this one. From this fountain, the free will of God, it is those laws which we call the laws of nature have flowed, in which there appear many traces of the most wise contrivance, but not the least shadow of necessity. These, therefore, we must not seek from uncertain conjectures, but learn them from observation and experiment. Well, so Isaac Newton does something huge because he he unifies he unifies the uh, the heavens and the earth. The right. same the same force that's holding the planets in orbit is the same thing that brought that apple down. Um, that's huge. I mean, this is I, I, and that's huge. And he he's, he's not denying he he believes God created the world right. and created. But the way we're going to learn about it now is not through uh, uh, reading a book. Right. It's it's not even you know Martin Luther where now the Bible is. You know, I don't know if uh, what Isaac Newton would say about Martin Luther. I didn't find any quotes there. But you can find out what God's laws are through your own mind, right? You, you know, you have the capacity for rationality. And you can under, not that you can understand the mind of God, but there's a reason why the sun comes up and its sun goes down. There's not a wild, there's not a wild God pulling the sun across the sky. There's answers in nature to help us understand the world around us. We don't have to rely on superstition. We don't have to rely on witchcraft, um, which basically is pulling a leg out, if you will, from the church. It's taking power away from the church and putting it into the hands of 
not say the common man, because the common man really isn't, aren't making these discoveries, but certainly taking power away from the church. Well, sure. And, uh, and, and the, uh, you know, his ideas were eventually influenced this concept of deism. Uh, Newton himself probably wasn't a deist. He believed that even though the orbits were set up and so forth by God, he might have to time to time to keep the planets there, <laughs> which is not a, a, a concept a deist uh, uh, would uh, uh, promulgate. But he, the, the, the deism is the, the concept that uh, there's, God exists and he's ultimately responsible for the creation of the universe. But he doesn't inter- interfere directly with the created world. And the way we find out about the created world is use our rationality, also a gift from God, and we can find out how things run. And um, this becomes really the dominant way of getting to know the ultimate nature of reality from this point forward. I mean, when we get sick, I mean, if you're religious, you might pray. But you're probably going to go to a doctor. Right. And, you know, the doctor is informed by science. His education is going to be scientific. Uh, If we want a building built, we're going to find an architect or engineer, somebody who is trained in physics. We're we're not going to just willy-nilly pray that something, uh, you know, will happen. But but anyhow, uh, so this is a huge – it changes the way we look at the world and – uh, these uh, there's people around uh, that uh, at the time who who apply these ideas, these scientific ideas, to government and politics. Uh, the idea that we can observe nature and make a hypothesis, test it, and apply these results. It, it was see we could do this. People thought, well, heck, we can do that for government too. Right. So no longer we can all start moving away from divine right of kings. Right. That the God Himself is going to hand us our next ruler, and that ruler is always going to be right because God says it's right. Now we can start looking and adjusting. And you're absolutely right. And the Magna Carta and things like this, even though the Magna Carta is before uh, the the awakening. I mean the the Enlightenment. But that is an example of how man is going to start stepping in and taking ownership uh, to try to figure out things, how things happen. I want to sh- Do you ever hear the story of George Spencer? No. Let me tell you a story of George Spencer. Okay. In 1640s, George Spencer uh, was not a real good servant in the United States, uh, colonies, New England. He was in Connecticut, uh, kind of balding, wouldn't read the Bible, basically when his master told him to, got caught stealing a few times. He ends up moving to another um, colony because he got kicked out. And uh, Spencer only had one eye, had a glass eye, and he was in his house, and apparently the neighbor's pigs had a piglet that had a malformed eye. And you can guess that the Puritans, um, not being part of the Enlightenment, blamed Spencer. That this was witchcraft. That this was oh. this was Spencer. Analogical causation. He had a bad eye. And he's causing the pigs to be born around him to have bad eyes. Exactly. He's not a good Christian. Uh, He's not doing what he was supposed to be doing. This is clearly God's punishment for us for allowing him to be here. And the only thing to do is to – what's his punishment? I don't know. He's He's executed. He's Okay. So he was a witch. Burn him. I don't know if he was Well, he was probably hung. But he he was executed. He confessed um, (laughs) because – Apparently, the story goes that uh, uh, somebody else had confessed earlier to a, some sort of crime, and they kind of got off a little bit easier. Uh, he thought he would too, and I think it, basically the mercy was you'll die quickly. Uh, but the pig died too, so I think that's fair. 
You know, the, <laughs> okay. where the pig went to. So there was analogical causation. Yes, I mean, so anyway, we're going to start moving away from that idea and start moving into a more modern way of thinking. I always like the George Spencer story. Uh, he's executed in 1642, and the Constitution is written 140 years later. It's a huge leap to go from a George Spencer to the idea that we are going to elect our own people to represent us outside of this framework that God's going to help us. Right. And uh, let, let's talk a little more about how uh, uh, what divine right was. And that's basically the idea since feudal times uh, uh, that God favors one family to rule. And, uh, and of course, kings like this idea and queens because if you revolted against them, you were not just revolting against them. You were revolting against God because God wanted them to rule. And this is illustrated, we go way back to the King Arthur right. myths where, you know, uh, he can pull a, a sword out of a stone. He can pull Excalibur, even though he's smaller and, and then the other knights trying. And, and part of this is it's what shows the favor of God. He gets his great strength through that's who God wants. And, and uh, you know, just— um, and then he throws it to some watery tart <laughs> in the lake, right? That's no, that's no foundation of government. Some watery tart handing out swords. That's no system the, of government. The, the lady of, of the lake. But uh, anyhow, you, you still see this idea alive. If you watch the recent royal wedding between Prince Harry and oh, Meghan God, did Markle. Did you watch that? I did watch oh. it. And, and toward the end of the wedding— they sing England's national anthem, and uh, the queen is there. And the national anthem is God Save the Queen. It goes right back to those ideas where uh, the ruler is, is, is there because of divine right. Now, the greatest figure in uh, the English Enlightenment as far as government goes is a guy named John Locke. And he said, you know what? I'm looking at nature, and I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing divine right. Uh, I look at nature, I see people being free and equal in a, in a state of nature before government starts, and things are fairly good that way, but they're threatened because somebody can come and grab my property or knock me on the head and kill me, and there's, there's nobody to appeal this. So it's, uh, it's, even though it's nice and it's free and equal, it's, it's risky. So uh, what men need to do is come together and they need to give up a little freedom of equality and say they're going to follow the law and you're going to have judges and police and the, the government can protect what he called your life, liberty, and property. That's the way John Locke put it. And um, everybody, it would be a better situation than the full equality and liberty that you enjoyed in nature. This idea he called, and other people call it, it's a social contract. And that's the basis of the American government, too. Um, the social contract is the idea, hey, we voluntarily get together. We're going to give up some stuff. We're going to, you know, we're going to elect uh, leaders who, who will make laws. Those, uh, those laws we'll have to obey. They're going to be enforced, but they're going to make us more secure uh, in our lives, liberty, and property. Now, because it's voluntary, if government takes away those rights, we don't have to Follow it. It's a contract. Right. They're not doing their contract. We're not doing our part of their And contract. this whole thing is building a revolution because when you start educating people in the printing press with Gutenberg is in the 1400s, and when, when the average person, not, when most people are illiterate, life is short and harsh, there is some sort of comfort in knowing that God's looking over after you and that you're all everything is in God's hands and predestined. But as the printing press and as 
education spreads and you start thinking about why am I here and what does someone owe to me? Why are they why is he rich and why am I poor? And if you start breaking away from uh, divine right of kings, you start breaking away from God controlling everything, you're gonna start to get a little pissed because you're gonna see people have a whole lot and you not having a whole bunch. And eventually, 1840s, you're going to see lots of revolutions all around Europe. But there's going to be, obviously, the American Revolution is going to be the French Revolution. The masses who are educated are only going to stay oppressed for so long. It's sort of the beginning of the end of divine right of kings. Yeah, and uh, and uh, that, that's the case. And, you know, uh, John Locke's a philosopher— and a lot of times philosophers, uh, you know, they don't actually hold an office in government. They don't seem to have power. But John Locke had a very important student, and that was Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson wrote our Declaration of Independence, which was uh, obviously ratified by Congress July 4th, 1776. And Thomas Jefferson said the first part of the Declaration of Actually, Independence— Actually, July 2nd it was ratified. Oh, was it? Yeah. I thought July 4th was no, the final. July, was that that took effect in July? July 2nd it was uh, passed. It was seconded. It, it was signed on the 4th. So oh, signed re- on the 4th. Everyone thinks it was a, a Lee, per, Lee moved that this we become full and independent, and it was voted and passed. So really okay. on the 2nd. We should be celebrating July 2nd instead right. of July 4th. That's a whole other podcast. Okay. Uh, but anyhow— uh, Thomas Jefferson says uh, that the who is a you know obviously a wonderfully educated man and uh, fluent in many languages and we don't need that's a whole other topic uh, too. But he said the the first part of the Declaration of Independence was I quote pure lock. <laughs> he he got it and he, here is the the the, the well known paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Except slaves. Well, stop. Native and they, Americans. They are endowed Indians. by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He's a philosopher. So he's changing Locke and life, liberty, and property, the pursuit of wealth, to the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. He gets this basically from the second treatise on civil government from John Locke, and he's open about it. That's where it comes from. That's our American theory of government. Now, a lot of people will look at this and they go, what well, it says, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Thomas Jefferson is, is saying that the source of our rights is a Christian God. But Thomas Jefferson wasn't a Christian. He, he was, was a deist. He was a deist. Uh, in a letter to John Adams, he said, and the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. So he basically says the virgin birth didn't occur. He also wrote General uh, Smith uh, this uh, in a, uh, quote, it is between 50 and 60 years since I read the Apocalypse and Revelation, and I then considered it merely the ravings of a maniac, <laughs> no more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherences of our own nightly dreams. So, it's he's not a Christian. He can't. He's not. You know, 
denying revelation and denying the virgin birth aren't typical Christian beliefs. What he is is a deist, and he is saying that there is a creator, but if we look at natural law, he's like Locke. If we look at what has been created, we will see this is why men get together, that they want to secure, they want to be more secure, especially in their rights. And because they do it voluntarily, then legislatures, elected legislatures, are the ones that have power, not kings through divine right. It is a profound secularization. Oh my gosh, government. yes. And yeah. people don't understand that. Some of the guys, obviously most of the guys who are sitting in, who we consider our founders were Christian. True. Um, Jefferson certainly was not. Uh, matter of fact, when Jefferson became president, many people accused him of being an atheist. Women were told to go out and hang their Bibles in the well because Jeffersonians were going to come around and start claiming the Bibles uh, from all the good citizens. But you've painted a great picture of, I think a great line could be drawn here, of what the view of government was before the Enlightenment and what the view of government is going to be or how government comes about post-Enlightenment. Well, um, what makes it legitimate? What right. makes it – why are people going to accept it? Not because of God, because no. of the consent of the governed. It's the consent of the – through elections. Right. It's uh, in, Instead of a power-flowing – uh, through God, through the king, down to the people, the idea becomes the power flows up through the people, through elections, to their leaders. It's almost the exact opposite right. of what occurred. And that's why they had a revolution. And if you read the rest of the Declaration of Independence, it's a big complaint about the stupid king of England and all the terrible things he does. And why he's got, and therefore he's got to be get, getting rid of. And we have to start a new country. So the whole theory of our government is is based on that. It's 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 a foundation of natural law. Uh, it's gotten from John Locke and it comes through us through Thomas Jefferson. And uh, those ideas eventually get expressed in the actual governing document of our country, which is the Constitution. Right. My father always said the proof, yeah, you passed me a beer. That, I, I, I'm having trouble opening it. If you could open this for me, John, okay, I appreciate right. You weren't here for the pre-show drink of beer, but I, it took me like 10 minutes to open a beer. I don't know what's gotten into me. Um, as my father would say, the proof in the pudding is in the eating, or the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Um, and it is one thing to say that we are a secular government and that Jefferson, thank you, Jeffrey, and that Jefferson was a deist. Um, but they did leave something very important behind for us to look at to sort of prove this and that little document is called the Constitution. Um, it was written very purposeful, uh, purposefully. Um, it was not – actually, it was our second attempt at government. So it even – they even had a chance to go back and redo it, so to speak. And they could have added things, which they did, uh, to improve upon the Articles of Confederation. Um, so when people say that we are a Christian nation, that we – that's sort of you – could, you could say that we are a nation of Christians. Um, that would be accurate. But to say that our government is based on Christianity would be problematic. Uh, we're going to talk specifically well, yeah, about it, the Constitution. It's, it's, the only, the, if you had to pick out one big Christian theme within the Constitution, it would be equality. This idea that all men are equal at the foot of the cross. Um there certainly is an equality sec part. This not equality is built into the Constitution that all men should be equal, regardless of your station of life. 
I'm not going to say that the Constitution, that the founders borrowed that from Christianity, but the idea of being equal at the foot of the cross, certainly there is a parallel there. Right. And 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 we don't want to, you know, I would never tell anybody that uh, the Christian religion uh, didn't influence either European history or American history. Um, that's not at all the point we're making. No, no, no. And uh, I, I see another uh, uh, Christian idea in the Constitution. That's a separation of powers. They thought somebody with power couldn't be trusted, and that's what you would think in a fallen world. <laughs> you would you would not think that you're going to have a, an enlightened being uh, in charge, and uh, and so I certainly. There are ideas which are very compatible, and I think Jefferson, you know, obviously he grew up in colonial America. He knew uh, most of his uh, fellow uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence and uh, people in legislature were Christians. And the idea that a creator is the source of our rights is not incompatible with Christianity, but it's not limited to Christianity. No, there's some- his, his, his beliefs— were not that of a fundamental Christian. They now, just what you could say, there, there are no Christian beliefs embedded in the Constitution. We don't see the Ten Commandments. We don't see uh, any parables. We don't, you know, anything like that. It's a very— But, but we see influences. Absolutely. You absolutely see influences, but you're not going to read the Bible, then read the Constitution and go, boy, that's like reading the same— th-. No, it's not. Matter of fact, the writers of the Constitution went out of their way to sort of make a separation— between government and religion. Um, do you? I guess the proper place to start here is with the First Amendment. Um, well, we can, uh, we can always talk about, you know, Jefferson back in colonial days, I wrote the Virginia Statutes okay. of Religious Freedom. And, and, you know, he's only got three things on his, uh, his tombstone. tombstone, and that's the first thing he puts. And that was, in, and, you know, in Massachusetts, if you wanted to vote or be a member of government, you had to be a a member of the Puritan Church, and in Virginia, he didn't want that, and he got well, the— Well, Virginia would have been the Anglican Church. It would have been the Anglican Church, but yep. the Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedom, uh, uh, one of the specific things it talks about is not paying taxes, because, of course, if you have church and state, they're one thing. When I pay my taxes, it goes to support a church I might may or may not be a member of or may or may not support their viewpoint. So it talks about that. So, again, you have sort of the repair— of uh, Jefferson. So let's let's talk, like I said, let's get up to the Constitution. And the Constitution mentions religion uh, two places that I know of. Uh, I think the first place is in the body of the Constitution itself. Right, we're going to go Article 6 of the Constitution. Okay. Um, is that where you want to start? Sure. Okay. Um, it, we're going to kind of start at the end of the Constitution. Um, and th- I think this is this is probably the one area of the Constitution where most people do not know. Uh, most people go right to the First Amendment. But Article 6 says, um, the senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of several state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support the Constitution. So that's a big deal. Basically, anyone who's elected or anyone who's working in the state government or the federal government, anyone who is an officer of the executive judicial will support, take an oath to support the Constitution. But no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office, public trust, uh, under the under the United States, that's huge. This basically allowing, and some people said this. We're now we're going to let Jews and and heathen become uh, 
presidents and vice presidents and senators, and God knows where our country will be. But no religious test is really, I think, very telling that they wanted to create. Some some people will say, well, there's no the phrase separation of church and state is never any is not in the Constitution. It's not. We get that from Jefferson. But certainly, when you look at Article Six. There's, that's a pretty clear wall right there. Right. And there was a text, uh, uh, actually a thing called the Test Act in England, where people, uh, the Protestants in control of parliament, uh, uh, made an act that you had to renounce transubstantiation, the actual turning of the body and uh, blood, uh, the the bread and wine and, and communion into the body and blood of Christ. Uh that's Catholic doctrine, so you had to renounce it, therefore you couldn't be a well, Catholic. Well, that's just common sense. I yeah. mean, you cannot be a good legislator unless you're <laughs> renouncing transubstantiation. But, I mean, good Lord. But anyway, I think, uh, you know, I think it was a King James II came maybe and, and uh, got rid of that. But but whatever, the, the idea is we weren't going to have that. You weren't going to have uh, 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 a test. And then— uh, later on, the the only uh, place that religion is mentioned, and God and Jesus is not mentioned at all, but uh, religion is mentioned in the Bill of Rights. And in Amendment 1, uh, religion is given a prominent place, and it says, uh, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. That means we can't have a state religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Um the other thing I would mention, too, if we want to go in the Constitution, just to make this point further that, that our Constitution is secular, is the preamble. I think everybody in the world knows the first three words. Everybody, I hope every American knows the first three words in the Constitution. If you're a, ch- if you're a child of the 70s and, and 80s <laughs> and you did not see Schoolhouse Rock as a child, your parents did you a disservice. And. Uh, the the authority for government comes from that's right we the people and if you look at something like the uh, a place where they don't separate church and state like most Muslim countries the Iraqi the new Iraqi Constitution the preamble the very first words are in the name of God the most merciful the most compassionate they don't have separation God, that would state. scare you wouldn't it well. Whose religion are you talking about? Whose religion are you talking about? Whose interpretation are you talking about? I mean, good golly. And I think it's also important to note, remember the the Bill of Rights is a compromise. It's not part of the original constitution. So when they left Philadelphia, um, there wasn't – the only part religion was ever mentioned in the constitution at all was to say you don't have to be part of any religion to participate in our government. So it even makes the argument even stronger for uh, a secular government that religion's mentioned one time and that is to say – Religion has nothing to do with whether you can hold office in this country. Now, we already talked in the previous podcast about the Federalists and Anti-Federalists and the compromise that brings us the uh, the Bill of Rights. But that that first um, amendment, uh, not b- giving you the free exercise of religion, uh, giving you um, – uh, against the establishment of religion, then simply solidifies the idea of a secular argument. Right, and and, and a lot of people too they I, I, they don't understand the First Amendment. First of all, I think you can see that the first thing mentioned in the Bill of Rights uh, is the First Amendment, and the first thing mentioned in the First Amendment is is religion. So they think it's important, right? But they don't think it is important in having a national religion, they think it's very important that we don't have one. The idea, 
and all these religious wars before, and 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 also in in England. I mean, you know, when Henry the Eighth died and left uh, Mary uh, and she became queen, she was known as Bloody Mary because she was Catholic and she was killing Protestants. And we didn't. We knew that the founders knew the history of what happened when religion was coupled with the power of the state. That and it, it even when it was, um, and maybe even especially when it was. Uh, one branch of Christianity versus another, that they used it ruthlessly against other religions. And they didn't want that. So the Establishment Clause is the flip side of the Free Exercise Clause. Yes. If I have an established religion with, that you have to pay taxes to and can oppress you if you become in some way heretical, I can't possibly have free exercise. It's not anti-religion. It is pro-religion in the sense you can practice what you want. If the government has an establishment, you won't be able, we know from history, you won't be able to do that. Right. The And this is what I think a lot of uh, conservative Christians don't understand. And that is the idea that we have a secular government is the protection for your religious freedom. Because you had this, you people envisioned that obviously, if we had a religious government, it would be the government that I would like because it would be the religion that I would like. It would be the brand of Christianity that I endorse. And there's no truth. Well, wait, would it include transubstantiation or not? Obviously not. That's just well. Then you throw out the biggest group of Christians in the United States, which is Roman Catholic. But yeah, I get it. We're we're making a point. Yeah, when it becomes okay, we're going to have well, why people say well. You know, the biggest religion in the United States is Christianity, but then there's the, okay, which branch of that is it going to be, <laughs> you right. know, that not only transubstantiation and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, that's a difference between Catholics. Is it going to be one of the churches that allows their ministers to perform same-sex marriages or one of the churches that say that's an abomination? Well, there has to be a, a fight over that. Right. We didn't, you know, our founders didn't want the fight. And uh, I think it, uh, you know, various uh, justices have, have uh, weighed in on that. And uh, what was the justice that Reagan appointed? Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. And I think she said something about the separation of church and state. So why would we want anything else? Because it's worked so well. And if you think about it, and then, you know, we live in Lancaster. I can drive around. I can see uh, there's three synagogues. There's a Muslim worship center. Uh, there's a Buddhist. Uh, there used to be a Buddhist temple in Colombia. There's Catholic churches, Protestant churches. And you know what? I, I Maybe it happens, but usually you don't get out of church and go fight the other guys. <laughs> do you? I mean, it's uh, not Northern Ireland, right? Have, 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 do you hear any about like a bombing here? Yes, like, we're about to go kick the hell of the Buddhists today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're, mean, just, they're just not with the program. Just, uh, I mean, it works like crazy, and it works for religion. Yes, it's just not the source of our government. And no matter how you want to spin that, if if you really, really want that, you can't go back and look at our documents and say that it is. It's not. It, the source of the power in our government, three words, we the people. Right. This is, our our economy is very simpler, sim, 
similar to our religious life here in America, and that's the free marketplace of ideas. You get the free marketplace of ideas uh, that anyone can go out and say anything, and you may be able to start the next great religion. You're not stifling a religion. You're not stifling somebody else. So um, our economy is based on a free market. Our religion is based on a free market. The freedom of speech is based on a free market. And when you limit the economy, when you limit religion, when you limit speech, you better have a compelling reason to do so because you're limiting freedom in the end. You're limiting people's right to express themselves economically, spiritually, or literally, verbally, or with within or the written word. And the declaration is it says governments are designed to protect our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And certainly, liberty and pursuit of happiness. Are uh, and how to live our lives are subjects of religion, and it's it's not the government's duty to tell us how to do those things. Okay, which brings us to gay cakes. Not yet, but you know we're <laughs> we're getting there. Um, so it all sounds nice and easy. Anyone can do anything they want to claim freedom of religion. We all hold hands and sell Girl Scout cookies and sing Kumbaya, but it doesn't work that way. Um, in practice, every right that we enjoy has limitations on it. Um, no right is absolute. The only absolute right you have in the United States is the absolute right of free thought. You can think anything you want and you can believe anything you want. The problem is, is that free thought sometimes occasionally leads to action. And when free thought and religion or whatever leads to action, the government can and will step in when necessary. An obvious one is human sacrifice. There is no way you're going to be able to get human sacrifice through the court system to say, well, it's freedom of religion. You're not. The state, the government is going to have a compelling reason to say, no, you cannot practice that. Now, somewhere between human sacrifice and gay cakes, there is a line that needs to be drawn. And every generation is going to draw that line in a little different place. The arguments are going to be a little different. Um, and, well, and also, you know, uh, this is related to the, to the war on Christmas, too. Because yes, the war on Christmas, but, which is you know, I tell you what, whoever's fighting the war on Christmas, they're doing a terrible job. And Christmas <laughs> is just kicking their butts, and uh, you know because I, you know, I've been celebrating it for over sixty years. I have no plans to stop. I and I've never talked to anybody who is a Christian who celebrates Christmas who says they're now going to to. You know, okay, I, I'm going to go with the Kwanzaa. <laughs> I'm not going to go with the Kwanzaa. Uh, and so, whoever is doing the war on Christmas, I, uh, they their generals suck. That's just not happening. Oh so. man, that's a great podcast. When we get when we get to the Christmas season this year, we are doing one. The war on Christmas. The whole Christmas. war. Okay. Remember Colbert? He did one on the war on the war on Christmas. <laughs> like people were actually getting anyway. If you haven't listened to the old Stephen Colbert, but, the Colbert but, but, Report, but, some yeah. of the greatest satire out there. This is, like Matt said, these conflicts keep happening over and over again. And of course, the the group that interprets the Constitution, the branch of government that interprets the Constitution, is uh, the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court uh, has set guidelines over time about uh, what is the proper separation of church and state? Um, when is the government unnecessarily interfering with your free exercise? Yeah, absolutely. It is the Supreme Court that is going to make these decisions for us. Um, and we're not going to, we're kind of running out of time in this podcast, but we do want to hit probably one of the first times the Supreme Court has to step in and start monitoring 
um, this conflict between religion and law and religion and culture. And it's a Reynolds case. It's called dealing with polygamy and uh, Mormons, right? Right. It's uh, Reynolds versus the United States. And uh, it's it's kind of an interesting thing because uh, it deals with Mormons or the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, um, which is one of those groups. We, we talked about how the Constitution, uh, the Freedom of Exercise Clause and the Establishment Clause are two sides of the same coin, and how religion has blossomed in the United States. And the Mormonism is a uniquely American right. religious expression. If you take away Native American faiths, it is the only American-born major world religion, right? Right. It started right here. Keeps adding people right. through missionary work and so forth. But anyhow, uh, the Mormons had this uh, belief in uh, having many wives. Uh, Brigham Young, uh, not the Joseph Smith was the founder of Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but Brigham Young became their leader in Utah Territory. And he was probably the, their most famous polygamist. Uh, he had one wife till he became a Mormon. He had 54 others for a total of 55. And he said uh, when he became a Mormon, it was a, and he found out about plural marriage, he said it was the first time in my life that I desired the grave. <laughs> so uh, evidently he, he wasn't enthusiastic, but possibly he became more enthusiastic because uh, 16 of those wives uh, uh, gave him a total of 57 children. And, uh, you know, so polygamy was practiced by Mormons in Utah territory. Yeah, about well, 5 to 15 percent, they estimate, because obviously if you do start doing the math on this, not everyone can practice polygamy because you'd run out of females. Uh, even when you talk about Brigham Young and John Smith. Joseph Smith. I'm sorry, Joseph Smith. There is, uh, you have to do a lot of reading on it, which ones were conjugal wife, wives, he was actually having relationships, What, which ones were simply just legal wives that, that, that he was taking care of. It's, it's a pretty complicated rabbit hole, which we're not going to go down. But there was lots of wives. Lots needless, of wives. Needless to say, lots of wives. Though the practice was widely, but not widely practiced. Again, they estimate about t uh, 5 to 15% of Mormons were practicing polygamy. And it was it, the, the deal was it was accepted – uh, and to and to a to a degree encouraged uh, by their religion. So, uh, what happens is a law uh, gets passed, and which uh, a federal law which prohibits uh, polygamy. Uh, you know, defines uh, marriages between being one man and one woman. I Actually, think before you, before you start going down that path, let's yeah. talk about that Utah becomes a state in 1896. Right. So this is what we're talking right. about. This case is why it's, well, Utah is still a territory. Right. And they give up polygamy. Mormonism, Mormons give up polygamy in 1890, basically because they weren't, the United States wasn't going to bring them in as a state. So That's this is correct. all pre-1890, right. before they become a state. They're and they're governed by federal law. Right. Because the territory, territories, you're governed exactly. by federal law. And there's a moral anti-bigamy act and- uh, act. Uh, anti-bigamy act. Polygamy. Well, bigamy means having more than one wife. What's so. polygamy? Uh, having bunches of wives. Bigamy, you can just be one. Bigamy <laughs> is just one? <laughs> well, it could be just one more. All right. All right. Anyhow. There we go. All right. So George Reynolds, he's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and, you know, he gets married while he's still 
married to his previous wife, and he's prosecuted. So uh, under the Moral uh, Anti-Bigamy Act. So anyhow, the question is, is, uh, is he just practicing his religion? Or, and if he is, is that uh, a defense to this criminal charge of bigamy? And uh, the court upheld Reynolds' conviction and Congress's power to prohibit polygamy. And the court said that, well, Congress could not outlaw a belief. And that's what you mentioned earlier, right. that, you know, Congress, we shouldn't have, in uh, George Orwell's term, we can't have a thought police. Right. There can't be thought crime. You can think what you want, but you can't act uh, on those thoughts uh, always. And thank God, uh, you know, for that, because, you know, the next time a guy cuts you off in traffic, uh, <laughs> you know, your thoughts and your actions probably should diverge. But uh, the majority of the Supreme Court ruled that while well, marriage is a sacred obligation, it is nevertheless usually regulated by law. And, uh, uh, that people can't avoid a law just due to their religion. So Reynolds was was found guilty, and it wasn't a violation of his free exercise. A very interesting early case of where the Supreme Court is asking uh, is asked the question to define where is does that my, line? Yeah, where is the line between free exercise? Uh, is what I'm doing protected by the Constitution? Or is it not? Very good. And I think that's where we're going to call it quits here today to kind of give you a little tease for our next podcast. Um, Because the next podcast is really going to be loaded with a lot of Supreme Court cases and how the Supreme Court is interpreting the First Amendment and how that gets us eventually going to get us to gay cakes. Um, that it breaks down even to something that we really wouldn't even think would be an issue becomes an issue. Um, and this thing goes to hair length and, and prisons and beards. It really gets, we can really get down in the weeds. So thanks for joining us this week, guys. Uh, next week, we're going, to, we're going to give you the joys of Supreme Court cases and the First Amendment. Until then, have a good, have a beer and enjoy good conversation with friends. Thanks for joining us.